There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me on today's episode is Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week, we're talking about Microsoft's proposed investment in OpenAI, the owner of ChatGPT. We break down Southwest Airlines' recent fiasco, and we talk about Roku's decision to get back into hardware. Anne-Marie, how are we? Just the two of us today. Um, I'm good. It's, I'm, I'm back in Dublin. It's cold. It's rainy. It's so dark. It's <laughs> so dark. Oh, my God. You forget how like far north you well, are. Surely it was colder in Colorado than Dublin, no? It was during the polar vortex. It was colder. We had about three days during the polar vortex. Of course, the the annual polar vortex. Um, it was we about three days where it was about negative twenty two Celsius, which was very cold. And that's like when they get on the news and they're like, "Please don't don't leave your house." Yeah, it's like this will don't don't go don't go near the doors of your house. (laughs) Yeah, they're like this will freeze the inside of your lungs. Please don't breathe the air. Um. Yeah, so that that was cold, but like you you forget. Um, I remember looking at a map um, that was like highlighting oh how far north Europe is because you do forget because the whole reason it's like slightly warmer up here than it is to its equivalent longitude across the Atlantic is because of the jet stream. Yeah, and Dublin is like in the middle of Canada. Yeah, like, it's above is, tr- well above Toronto, isn't it? Yeah, it's so far north, and so like the real difference, like the thing that always gets me every year is how dark it is because Colorado is quite sunny like even when it's cold like it'll be negative 22 degrees but there will be no cloud cover so it'll be quite sunny so you still feel you can like jump out of bed and you're like oh, yeah this is yeah fine. getting up at like eight o'clock and it's still dark outside it's kind of grim oh, it just it really <laughs> it gets you like it just it gets you down this is what they're saying about uh people trying to cancel daylight savings time so that's gonna be yeah. like dark at like 9 p.m half nine in the mornings yeah I don't know. Sure, we'll see how. Because you know what, but we work remotely, so maybe by this time next year I'll be in Australia. Yeah, just that. Yeah. That's going to be really handy trying to record a podcast twelve hour time difference. Yeah, please, please well, do that. I'm just, I'm just thinking of myself. I'm putting, <laughs> I'm, I'm putting myself first. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, let's get into it. So, um, I have an, a new intro for us today. Ooh. So um, here we go. This is going to sound scripted because it is. Welcome to today's episode of Stock Club, where we dive into the big business moves that are making waves in the industry. And boy, do we have a doozy for you today. The tech giant Microsoft is reportedly in talks to acquire OpenAI, the company behind the world-renowned language model ChatGPT. Is this the beginning of a new era in AI or just a clever financial play? Tune in to find out. Do you find anything unique about that intro? Um... It did sound a bit like um, you should have been using like a 1950s radio voice. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it seemed I, like you uh, should have been like, tune in next week. Yeah, I didn't write that intro. So that intro was oh, actually God. written by ChatGPT um, on the, what was the mm-hmm. prompt? Can you write me an opener for a finance podcast and we discuss ChatGPT, OpenAI, and Microsoft's potential acquisition? So that is a little kind of scary and worrying, I think. Yeah. The robots the are thing- taking over. 
the only thing is that like can chat GPT say that out loud in a way that we would find comforting to listen to? <laughs> yeah. So well, maybe we, like <laughs> we will keep our jobs, but we will be merely puppets to chat GPT. We, we will be the voice of chat GPT. Yeah. All right. Well, here, I'll provide a bit of context to the story before we dive in, because I think you've you've done all the thorough research this week to answer <laughs> some, of my, some of my questions. So for those of you that don't know, chat GPT is an incredibly sophisticated AI bot, as you just saw. Um, and it's really been the talk of the town since its launch in late 2022. Last couple of weeks, it's all over Twitter. People are seeing what it can do. There was that guy that got it to make an entire children's book, and then he self-published it on Amazon. You know, it's got artists a little bit worried that people are all of a sudden not going to value you know, the written word anymore. But this week it came out that Microsoft is looking to potentially invest $10 billion in the AI startup, valuing it at $29 billion. That's quite significant. Microsoft has already been involved in OpenAI, investing $1 billion back in 2019. However, this new deal looks to claim a significantly larger portion of the business. So, Mike, can you give us a quick overview of what exactly ChatGPT is? Give us the nitty gritty. Mm, yeah, there's a big difference between a quick overview and the nitty gritty. I think okay, sorry. mine is <laughs> mine is definitely going to be the quick overview part. Um, but yeah, like it's the next big thing, man. Get on board. Um, it is. It, it's it's an incredible piece of software, and you can tell from the intro that I've been messing around with it all day. So, what is ChatGPT? I think it's at its simplest, it's an AI chatbot that has been developed to basically be able to find available information online and deliver human and accurate responses to any question you feed it. So the GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, which is key to using deep learning to generate text. And I think in terms of AI machine learning, this text generation has always been like a key aspect to it. You can go back, way back. I remember, um, do you know Renaissance, the famous hedge fund, Jim Simons? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of their uh, research around mis- machine learning and stuff uh, came from language processing way back when. I think this was when IBM was uh, leading it. They used to poach the guys from IBM's language teams and stuff. So text generation has always been this huge part of AI. And mm-hmm. I think what ChatGPT has done is it's been able to generate such a diverse range of con- content at basically the click of a button. And the text it does produce is incredibly human-like. It's been trained on a huge database of text. For, so it's able to mimic human authors pretty much. And for anyone that hasn't tried out, it really is like talking to another human. I'd recommend people just mess around with it. It's quite fun. OpenAI have said that so far it's been using customer service, marketing, obviously content creation, writing podcast intros, especially for this one. But I think the, pod, uh, the possibilities of it are really endless. There's actually a company set up now. It's called Do Not Pay. And it styled itself as the world's first robot lawyer. So the tagline is fight corporations, beat bureaucracy, and sue anyone at the press of a button, which is very dystopian and worrying. Great. Um, but this do not pay company currently has an open offer to lawyers of $1 million if they let its AI argue before the Supreme Court in their place. So basically put in, a, put in an AirPod and just repeat what the AI bot tells you to say. So wow. we're talking about like kind of, I, I, I would say the applications could go as far as the ad- imagination, really. Like whoever can think up a way to use this probably has an application for it. So it is, yeah. it is quite impressive. Yeah. But does it have pizzazz? Does it have panache? Can it do jazz hands? I don't know. Okay. I think that's always the most important question is, is you know, 
how much personality can it have? But um, <laughs> where could you see Microsoft implementing this AI software if the deal goes through? Yes, yeah, so the Microsoft relationship is a lot closer than I think even people realize. So I just read a report that in the intro we had it, that it invested $1 billion in OpenAI. Apparently, according to Fortune, this figure is actually as high as $3 billion. Uh, it hadn't been reported until like yesterday evening, I think. But what's interesting about that is that some of the investment, the original investment from Microsoft comes in the form of cloud credits. So as you can imagine, OpenAI is a huge, uh, it, it takes huge computing power to run ChatGPT. I think like every request is a couple of cents or something like that. I think uh, Sam Altman is the, is the man's name. He's saying it's costing like 100 grand a day to run or something like that. <laughs> So uh, first of all, OpenAI is a huge customer of Microsoft's. It's using the Azure cloud platform, Microsoft's answer to AWS. So apart from how it could use the software, what this deal may also be doing is ensuring that Microsoft keeps one of its best customers up and running. And we've already talked about the many applications of ChatGPT. It can be your robot lawyer and whatever else. But what a lot of people are talking about and the chatter is around Bing. So do you remember Bing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor Bing. If you don't remember oh. Bing, I don't blame you. Uh, but it, it's Microsoft's web browser, and it currently has about 3% of the search engine market. Google has 92% before you ask. So a lot of the talk is kind of if you could integrate ChatGPT into Bing, it beco could become a legitimate threat to Google search, which sounds outrageous to say out loud, but I don't know. It, crazier things have happened, I suppose. Yeah. Well, you just kind of mentioned something there, the kind of the nuances of this deal. You know, you mentioned cloud credits there. That's not kind of typical for private equity. Um, there are kind of some other funny things within this investment. Can you walk us through the deal in detail? Yeah. So it is very unique and very convoluted. And I think what's happening is Microsoft is protecting itself a bit. So the structure of the deal is that Microsoft will receive 75% of OpenAI's profits until it recoups its initial investment of the $10 billion. Once that threshold has been reached, Microsoft will then own 49% of the business. The other 49% will be early investors, OpenAI's founders, employees, all the rest. And then 2% will be OpenAI's uh, non-profit arm as well. And then beyond that, what gets very funky, <laughs> this is 30 years time we're talking about, but the mm -hmm. plan is for the ownership to eventually revert fully to OpenAI's nonprofit. That's once Microsoft has been paid back $92 billion on its investment and other investments are returned $150 billion. This is according to a report from Fortune that came out last night. Mm -hmm. So obviously this is a very long way down the road. And before Microsoft starts counting its profits, OpenAI was projecting a loss of more than 500 million for 2022. The company's projected 1 billion in revenue in 2024, but it's unclear how much costs that's going to lead to. So yeah, this is a very, very long-term investment. I think because of the structure and how favorable it seems towards Microsoft and stuff, I mm -hmm. think you could say, and because costs about 100 grand a day to run. I'm thinking a OpenAI very much needs this cash injection now. As we said, its main cost is the computing power taken to run it, which is all done through Microsoft Azure. So I'm sure Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, is able to come up with this kind of sweetheart deal for himself at a time, especially when OpenAI has all the hype around it, but also maybe under, under the water has like kind of 
has a bit of a, a need and not mm-hmm. not that I'm saying is in trouble, but definitely needs cash because it could obviously get cash from a lot of different places right now as well. Yeah. The kind of structure of it reverting back to essentially being a nonprofit um, once it's kind of paid back Microsoft, it, it seems like maybe something that regulators would maybe find favorable. I mean, we've seen, we've seen regulators sniffing around big tech a lot in the last few years. I mean, even Microsoft right now is um, in the midst of trying to get through its, you know, $70 billion uh, Activision Blizzard acquisition. Do you think that this deal is going to, you know, are we going to see regulators perk up again? Or do you think Microsoft has taken steps to maybe get around them? It's a good question. And it's probably one I don't have enough of an educated answer on to be talking mm-hmm. to a podcast to thousands of people. <laughs> but, but if you let me speculate, I think the fact that OpenAI and like ChatGPT in particular as a consumer product, it's, it's not a consumer product yet. You know, it's what's been released to the public is just a beta anyways. Um, It obviously has uses like, you know, you're talking about the do not pay. They're obviously paying open AI, but in terms of kind of antitrust and what will this affect, will this harm the customer? You know, these products and this company is so young and nascent. There isn't really an industry formed around them yet, which I would think means it's very hard to bring any antitrust complaints against it. But I want to caveat that with the fact that I know so very little about antitrust law, so don't <laughs> don't rely on that. Yeah. Hera, I just made you do one hypothetical. We'll have you do a second. If you're Sundar Pakai over at Google, do you think you'd be worried seeing this massive acquisition go to one of your biggest competitors? Mm, well, I don't think we need to do hypotheticals. Um, he is worried. Uh, the New York Times reported the fear that fear of this chat GPT and chatbots in general are code red at Google HQ. And it makes sense, too, when you think about it, like Google searches are just looking for the answer to a question, the vast majority of them. And this cuts a key step out of that equation. Instead of clicking a link to find your answer, it gets mm-hmm. delivered to you straight away. And then on top of that, these chatbots can do so much more than just give you the answer. They can write an entire prose for you. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from that New York Times piece, uh, CEO Sundar Pichai, 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 Pichai. I don't know. <laughs> I, saw, I saw there on the sheet and I was like, well. Should have Googled that beforehand. Yeah. CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, will say, has been in meetings to define Google's AI strategy and has upended the work of numerous groups inside the company to respond to the threat that ChatGPT poses. So that doesn't sound, doesn't sound not serious. Um, yeah. The only thing I would say is that Google has like huge investment in AI already. DeepMind AI was an acquisition back in 2014. Um, so it's a fully owned Alphabet subsidiary now, and it's actually profitable as well. So I don't imagine that Google are too far behind. And there's kind of, in this initial hype cycle and the excitement around this new technology hitting, I suppose, the public sphere, there's the, in, I suppose, there's the inclination for everyone to get super excited about this one company and this one chatbot because it's kind of the most tangible consumer facing product we've seen of AI so far. The other, the other like pushback on that is, well, if it is a technology such as this, could it be commoditized? You know, if Google puts all its resources towards building a chatbot, could they build something similar to this in the next year? That's the question you have to ask yourself because is Google search like, you know, when we talk about, words that become verbs google yeah. is like the number one go-to is is that going to lose people's mind share because you can go and 
get your podcast intro written out um, yeah. by ChatGPT. I'm not sure. So it's very much up in the air and it has um, it has set the alarm bells going off in Google. But to be cynical, I'm not sure if it is going to be the, the be all end all. We'll see. Yeah. ChatGPT, it doesn't have the same ring, does it? It's, it's not as kind of catchy. I mean, I mean, I wonder if they'll be like, they might have to rename it, get something new. <laughs> they might have to rename it. I don't know. Well, what would you rename it? Um, I mean, we tend to have that thing where we give all AIs like female weird, like generic female yeah. names. Siri, so maybe Cortana. Yeah. Uh, what's Amazon's called? Um, Alexa. Alexa. Yeah. So maybe they're gonna have to go find S- their generic Stephanie female name. Maybe like because in reference to the movie Her, maybe they can name it Joaquin. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> just the idea of having to address the AI as Joaquin when you ask it to like write your English essay for grade nine. I think I like that. That's, okay. That's an interesting one though, because it wasn't the new Blade Runner. Didn't Ryan Gosling fall in love with the AI lady as well? Yeah. Um, played by Anna Darmus. Um, and he, yeah, yeah, but he, this, this is just the new romance movie is lonely men falling in love with AI bots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to Do, put you. The doom and gloom okay uh zooming out then ai has long been touted as the next big thing but there hasn't really been a tangible use case for consumers yet chat gpt seems to be it you know this is our first anna de Armas ai um i've seen it write essays you know sales emails it writes code it even performs a discounted cash flow model that's crazy i actually i didn't know that we might be using that um how impactful <laughs> can this piece of software be and should workers out there be worried that machines are, are going to take their jobs in the next couple of years yeah this is a very philosophical question and i don't want to get Mm. too dystopian this early in the morning and also very similar to the antitrust stuff i'm not qualified to answer this at all i think i'm getting a bit exposed on the pod but i i i'd like to be a bit bullish and say that i don't believe ai will replace unique human content i think yeah google is already uh filtering out ai written articles i think from uh from search results pages and stuff so that's one thing but in just a more i don't know more expansive kind of way of thinking about it you can tell the difference between an ai written piece and someone's actual human writing and i I think that's important that's not to say that i don't see ai and chatbots and this kind of thing replacing jobs i think there are menial repetitive tasks on the table yeah. But it's not going to write the next great American novel anytime soon either. I think there is a limit to its capabilities. And when we talk about it taking jobs, I, I don't know if that's the way you should frame it. I think mm-hmm. you should frame it more so of removing menial tasks from people's days to give them yeah. time to go pursue more fulfilling and real work. So that that maybe is trying to put a positive slant on something that could be quite depressing. Uh, as we move forward but that's that's my take i think yeah it does seem quite good at like low grade content production like you know if you are using the chat function on amazon to talk to customer service like it does seem well suited to handle that type of thing but yeah i suppose you're you're correct in terms of like it's it's not gonna be able to write a play or or a screenplay particularly because i have this kind of long-term mindset where i'm like if we become more and more reliant upon ai and we strip out more like human writers the ai is obviously reiterating upon everything it's been fed so if it just gets then fed its own writing surely we get like further and further from something that's actually like coherent and that we enjoy reading and that's and that's a good way of thinking about it as well is that ai can't be original 
because it's based yeah. off being fed numerous older pieces yeah. and older pieces. So there's no original thought there. But I suppose if we were really like tech heads, you would maybe argue that people are the same. Like all writers <laughs> are the product of everything they've ever read. Or, but I suppose they experience things as well. Like I suppose writing is a combination of your written influence, but then also like your life experience. Yeah. So maybe we'll be okay. We're getting very philo- philosophical on this. The oh, one yeah, thing sorry. I will say, and I saw this, is people have obviously been trying to trip it up too. So oh, yeah, yeah. the classic, uh, I saw one, it was like, if I'm seven and my sister is twice my age, how old will yeah. my sister be when I'm 30? And it kept saying 60. So that's the one thing that us humans might have over the AI bots. <laughs> Tricky math questions we will still have. Yeah. Don't worry, everyone. <laughs> I'm, sure it's, I'm sure someone gets paid to do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, we're going to move on then. And looking at an industry that maybe needs this kind of technology. So there's yeah. a good time to talk about uh, Southwest Airlines the day after every flight in America was grounded for about four <laughs> hours. Yeah. The airline industry is not having a great start to the year or well, into 2022. So, and I think that's, I think that's the case. If an airline is making headlines, you know, it's for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And it has been a rough couple of weeks for Southwest Airlines. I would say airlines in general, but Southwest in particular. So you were mentioning the polar vortex earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, this winter storm caused chaos just before Christmas in the US. So it grounded a lot of flights across the board. However, Southwest just wasn't really able to recover. The few days of disruption combined with its aging technology forced it to cancel almost 17,000 flights from December 21st to New Year's Eve which I imagine is a slightly busy time for airlines. It actually only had one third of its planes in the air for three days there. So it's estimated the com- it cost the company about as much as $825 million in lost revenue and reimbursements, uh, making it one of the costliest fiascos in the history of the airline industry. Anne-Marie, talk us through this mess and what caused it. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned in the top there, it was the weather, like the weather initiated all of this, but then it kind of activated three other factors that meant that Southwest was disproportionately impacted in comparison to more traditional airlines that are quite successful in the United States. You know, we're talking about United, Delta, American Airlines, that type of thing. So those three factors is number one is that Southwest uses a point to point route model. So this means that it is not inconceivable that Southwest could fly a flight from New York to Miami, Miami to Denver, Denver to San Francisco, San Francisco to Buffalo. Buffalo, right? And 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 that would be like maybe one day or two days. And that plane has to kind of make those routes because it's expected to be at its next airport to fulfill another uh, another flight. That's very similar, actually, to how Ryanair flies planes here in Europe. For those of you that are familiar, but this is the antithesis of the policy that most American airlines uses, where they use a hub and spoke model which is they know that there are very, very popular routes. So they pick a couple of like mainstay airports. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. You know, they will pick JFK in New York. They will pick Miami. They will pick Atlanta. They will pick Denver. They'll pick Los Angeles. And then they fly many consistent flights in between those hubs and then a few to kind of smaller airports into a hubs with the idea being, you know, if you're a United customer and you want to go to Oklahoma City, there's a possibility you might have to fly Los Angeles to Denver, Denver to Oklahoma City, um, whereas, you know, Southwest maybe has that direct flight. This just means that like if one flight gets canceled, there's a massive domino effect, right? Because then all of a sudden the four yeah. flights that are meant to come after it can't be fulfilled. It also means in terms of standby crew, it's really difficult to get a backup crew if, you know, if one group gets stuck in Buffalo, you can't, you know – call up another group of people who just happen to be in the area because you tend to only have skeleton crews at these kind of rural hubs um, because it's unlikely you know it's it's one thing to call up a spare pilot in New York it's it's a it's a whole other thing to call up a spare pilot in North Dakota so this just meant that you know as soon as the polar vortex hit there was no way for Southwest to recover for up to five days because they didn't have the planes in the correct place they didn't have the crew in the correct place Additionally, this conundrum kind of revealed Southwest's really aged IT system, which kind of just made the whole situation worse. But this is something we've actually known for a while. Pilots within Southwest's infrastructure have been flagging this since about the 1990s, saying like, hey, you guys are really behind. Like, you're not using the technology that your competitors are using. Interestingly, Captain Casey Murray, who is the president of Southwest Airlines Pilot Association, he did a podcast back in November, so before all of this kicked off. And he has a quote that said, I fear that we are one thunderstorm away from a IT router failure, um, which will cause a complete meltdown. He literally predicted this like a month ago, which is, you know, that's pretty impressive. That's ominous, Um, yeah. Yeah. And also, like, these similar statements had been reflected by um, Southwest chief executive. Um, He said also back in November, we are behind as we've grown. We've outgrown our tools. So, like, it seems like everybody was aware of this and everyone was kind of like, oh, if there's a disaster, we're all going down and then just did nothing. So that's not great. Um, Essentially, the kind of linchpin, the main issue with the IT system was that Southwest's system isn't really set up to keep track of where the crew and the pilots are um, if a flight were to get canceled. So it was fine. When all the flights were flying normally, it was all okay. But once thousands of flights started to get canceled, they began to lose track of where people were, which meant the only way they could fix it was the pilots had to manually call into the office and say, hi, I'm so-and-so. I've had three flights canceled. I'm stuck at this airport. Unfortunately, though, like obviously during the Christmas period, you tend to be short staffed. And also like Southwest doesn't seem to have had such a widespread issue before. And so it meant that some pilots were waiting on hold for upwards of nine hours to report where they were, which is that's 
that's pretty bad. And there are also widespread reports of uh, crews and pilots sleeping in airports, like among passengers for several days, simply because they were waiting to be reassigned, waiting to be told what plane they were flying, what they were flying. So it was just kind of a massive failure that that unearthed, you know, some some problems that, that Southwest has kind of had cooking for a while. And then like the final kind of thorn in their side is the fact that Southwest is a budget airline. So it doesn't have the same kind of relationships that more traditional airlines have. You know, it's not in the, what is it, like the one world alliance. So it's very unlikely that another airline will be willing to fly your passengers if you have to cancel a flight. Whereas, you know, it's not inconceivable that if your British Airways flight gets canceled, American will take the passengers instead and fly them. So this meant that, you know, if, if your Southwest flight got canceled, you would know where else to go. You were waiting for another Southwest plane to be scheduled. So that's why you ended up seeing people, you know, Denver was particularly impacted because of the storm. It, you, there were genuinely people sleeping on the floor in the airport for three and four days. Like it's, Three or four days. Yeah, it was really bad. Jesus. Yeah. Um, So they've estimated costs of up to 825 million. Um, This is on lost revenue and reimbursements. But what about the technology overhaul that the company is obviously going to have to go through after all of this has gone through, after all this has happened? Yeah, that's actually kind of a difficult question. So Southwest chief executive yesterday, his name is Bob Jordan. He told reporters that like Southwest is where, yes, we have this massive IT issue and they agreed that they need to accelerate improvements to the system. But he really didn't give any other details other than that. So we don't know what the timeline is here. They are kind of they're scheduled to to report complete financial results um, for 2022 at the end of the month. So, you know, we might get a bit of clarity there. They might say on their earnings call, hey, we're going to flag this several hundred million dollars to do this. Um, But their net income for the first nine months of 2022 was only 759 million. So essentially, everything's getting wiped off the board here by um, the lost revenue and the reimbursement. So, you know, it, it is a bit difficult to produce several hundred million more to rapidly have to update your IT system because, of course, massive IT overhauls cost a lot of money. They cost way more when you suddenly have this rapid timeline under your belt because people are expecting it. So I would expect it will be pretty significant. Also, on top of that, over the summer, Southwest announced that they were investing $2 billion into customer experience. This was mainly focused on like the in-flight experience. So they were trying to um, put Wi-Fi into all of their planes. Um, They were improving in-flight entertainment and stuff like that. So they already have like earmarked this $2 billion. It's like cutting the grass when the house is on fire. Yeah. So like they already have a bunch of money tied up in something else. So like that's going to slow it down as well. Um, The one kind of, I suppose, green shoot here is that Southwest has substantially less debts than most of its competitors. It tends to be a little bit more profitable. So it is possible that the company will just say, right, we understand the IT system needs to be updated. There's enough public pressure. We're going to activate our revolving credit facility and we're just going to take out debt and get this handled. But so far, we have very little clarity on like where the money is coming from, how much it's going to be, how long it's going to take, any of that stuff. But I, I would expect it to be pretty expensive. So I'm looking at the chart here now for Southwest and the first flights were canceled on December 21st. Stock yep. is down one and a half percent since that time. It obviously yep. tanked right after Christmas, but it's basically recovered since. How, yeah. how does that work? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because Southwest is actually one of the most successful airlines when it comes to profitability and rewarding investors. They've really streamlined the flying process in the United States. They're not quite Ryanair. Like they have a, a higher quality of customer service, certainly. Um, and, you know, they have in-flight entertainment and free Wi-Fi and, and those type of perks. And like your checked bags fly for free. You get up to two bags for free. But they have done an awful lot of streamlining to accelerate, you know, their ability to onboard and offload passengers, which, you know, allows them to have this point point system. Uh, some of the other things they do is like they only fly one type of jet, um, which means it's just easier for them in terms of maintenance. Uh, they don't assign seats. Interestingly, they just put people on. You kind of you get assigned uh, to a group and you just get on the plane. And also they have repeatedly stated that the reason they give people free checked bags is they've noticed if the bag checks for free, people carry very little on board. And so it just means that, you know, you don't have all these people fighting to try and get overhead bin yeah. space. Everyone's just like, oh, I just have a handbag. It's whatever. I'll sit down. So that has actually meant that they're quite profitable. So uh, they've paid out nearly $10 billion to shareholders over the last five years. They have an aw- they generate an awful lot of cash. And so it has made them very, very popular on Wall Street. I mean, airlines are very famously like an unpopular category of stock. Warren Buffett is famously quite opposed to them. He doesn't seem all that interested. You know, he, he knows that it's a very difficult industry. It's an incredibly difficult one to turn a profit in. So Southwest is kind of the silver lining really in this industry. So I think investors are like, oh, yeah, this was a hiccup in terms of customer experience. But, you know, if they continue to operate in the way they have for the last several years, things should kind of be fine. I mean, even like last month, Southwest reinstated its stock dividend, which it had to suspend in 2020, uh, you know, because of the pandemic. But then also there were restrictions imposed on airlines receiving federal aid. So they were told they were not allowed to pay a dividend. So it's kind of one of those traditional examples in which customers and investors are somewhat in opposition. I mean, Southwest for, you know, the same five-year timeline we're talking about that have been so successful for investors have been some of the worst when it comes to Southwest's pilots. Their unions have repeatedly criticized the company's management for doing massive payouts when they need to update their IT system or when they need to pay their pilots more or when they need to alleviate scheduling issues for pilots. So I think this might be an instance in which the company maybe needs to reevaluate and strike a better balance in between investors and staff. Um, But it, 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 to me, is highly reminiscent of some of the instances we have seen within the U.S. auto industry, but also recently with Boeing, where you're kind of like, oh, this company 10 or 20 years ago made a significant management shift in which they were like, we are going to only think about our shareholders. We are only going to maximize profits. And sometimes that means, particularly if you're in a customer-facing business, that your your customers are going to suffer, that the quality of your product is going to suffer. You know, it's it is almost inconceivable to think that you're using an IT system from the 1990s. You're flying airplanes. Like, this is a serious business. I, I, you're not a taxi company. So, you know, I think that this will probably place public pressure, maybe legal pressure upon them to, to update. I know the Department of Transportation has done an awful lot of kind of grandstanding in the last couple of days saying that they will hold Southwest uh, to account. So, you know, it'll be interesting to watch over the next couple of months if there's any kind of internal adjustment. But for now, Wall Street is saying, listen, if no regulation kind of happens, Southwest is still a cash cow. It's still a stock that's paying me out every quarter. So, you know, I don't care that someone had to sleep on the floor of Denver Airport for three days. Yeah, that $10 billion in buybacks and dividends is looking pretty bad when you're still using Windows 95, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's not great now, is it? <laughs> no. But aside from the costs, and I think you might have touched on this already, but what kind of brand damage has been done here for Southwest? And do you think it's a long-term stain on its reputation? Surely there are 17,000 yeah. planefuls of people that won't be using them again. 
It's kind of hard to say because, like, we are so begrudging in Europe of Ryanair. We <laughs> We're like, this it, is... <laughs> it's, it, it's so true because it's such a oxymoron where, like, I hate Ryanair, but I use them all the time because they the go time. to where I need to go and they're the yeah. cheapest flight. Exactly. And Southwest is exactly the same. Southwest is oftentimes the only major airline servicing regional airports. So people are often like, this is the only airline I can fly. And then on top of that, they are routinely the cheapest flight to get on and you get two free checked bags. So for the vast majority of people, they're going, why would I spend an extra $150 to fly in United? It's not worthwhile to me. And maybe fly not direct as well. Yeah. So like... It's it's like Southwest has a chokehold on this industry. And you know what? Like that is a product of um, of the monopoly system. It is a product of not enough airlines being in the US. It's the same way like Ryanair benefits from the fact there are not enough airlines in Europe. No one competes with them in the same way. So they can really get away with whatever they want. And, you know, traditionally a monopoly functions in the way that it means that you could charge whatever you wanted. You know, if Ryanair turned around tomorrow, they could say, oh, you know, if you want to fly from Dublin to Sardinia, we are the only airline that offers a direct flight. So everybody has to pay 100 euro or whatever. This is like a different type of monopoly where they're like, we won't ratchet up our prices, but we will make this the worst experience ever. (laughs) And you're just going to have to deal with it. Do you you remember when Michael O'Leary, he's the CEO of Ryanair, uh, he started banging the drum for standing up flights? Yeah, where he was like, if it's less than an hour, people should just stand in the back. Yeah, yeah, and everyone was up in arms. And he was like, and he was so right as well. He's like, I tell you right now, they're the first ticket sold if that goes yeah. to it. And he was right. And it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. it's it's very similar vibes where it's like, yeah, you know, I don't like it, but I don't really have a choice either. I suppose that's what a, mm-hmm. that's what a mode is like, isn't it? Yeah, and it was it's also like when Michael Leary was like, I want to charge people to get to go to the toilet. And then he went on the late late and he like mathematically justified it. But being like, if we charge for the toilet, we can take the two toilets out in the back and we only need one because fewer and fewer people will want to go. And he was like, I can fit an extra two rows of seats. And he was like, if I can fit an extra two rows of seats on every plane, everybody's ticket gets cheaper by five euro. And he was like, you know, if you're on the plane for an hour, most people will be like, yeah, fair enough. I'll get I'll get an extra five euro off. So it is this very difficult thing where people just line up to be treated horribly. And we're just like, well, OK. Yeah, yeah. it's maybe a metaphor for life. Um, OK, then mailbag. Uh, we have had a question come in about the launch of Roku's new line of smart TVs. So this is kind of a funny one for a company that so far for so long been pivoting away from har- hardware. This seems kind of like it's going backwards. Amory, what do you think about this? Yeah, it's they kind of pivot away from hardware in the way that they know it's not the place to make money. Very famously for the last several years, Roku sells those little dongles that plug into TVs. They sell those at a loss because they're like, it's fine. The amount of ad revenue will generate over a year, two years, three years. It will make it back and more. So that's kind of the gameplay that they've always been going with. I would see this as being very similar. So, you know, for several years, they have licensed their software into other kind of inexpensive TV manufacturers. Um, And now I think Roku's gotten to the point where they're like, listen, guys, if we make these TVs ourselves, we can sell them for cheaper, which means people are more likely to bring them into our homes, which again is that argument of, and then our software is in their home for 10 years. I also probably think it's an instance in which Roku probably wants greater customization of, of the product. You know, um, they very famously on the dongle remotes sell 
buttons. So there's typically four buttons that are dedicated to a single streaming service. And apparently Netflix pays through the nose to get onto the remote. Um, If they own a TV, they get to design an entire TV remote. So, you know, maybe they get eight buttons on there. Um, It's also interesting because we haven't really yet had a TV designed for the streaming age. We more and more hear about particularly young people who never get a cable subscription. You know, they only get, they take out three or four streaming services and that's it. So it's probably an instance in which Roku's like, we maybe want to reinvent the TV a little bit to make it for these people, to make it for these people who just want, you know, Netflix, Prime, Disney Plus, and Apple TV. So it will be interesting to see what they produce. Um, Hopefully, fingers crossed, this is not a full dongle in that they are hopefully generating something from it. They really struggled in 2020 and 2021 in terms of margins, um, operating margins on those dongles. It was bad. It was pretty negative. So, um, Hopefully they turn something on these, but I have seen the estimated prices and they are very competitive. They're quite low. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they do. Hopefully they have done the math here and some money will be made. Um, but I guess we're waiting to see. <laughs> That's a good, a good ethos for a business to have someone do the math and hopefully we'll make some money. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. All right. And now shall we wrap up the episode in typical fashion? We do an elevator pitch. We, yeah, I haven't done yeah. an elevator pitch in a while now, so I think I'm going to be yeah. rusty do you have a, at the best. Do you, do you have a long list of companies you've been looking at, or have you just packed it no, up? No, I've kind of went back to a company I was I wrote a piece on uh, just before Ooh. Christmas, which That's is kind my of, favorite strategy. When I <laughs> it's kind of cheating, but I also think it deserves a shout out because I'm not sure when the last time it's been mentioned okay. on the podcast is. So the company okay. is IDEX Laboratories. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so IDEX manufactures diagnostic products, equipment, and services for pets. It also has divisions in livestock and water testing, but they, they only produce a small portion of total revenue. So it's not really relevant to um, to this pitch anyways. So we've got the pet care trend here behind it, which I know both of us love, but it's also a great example of a razor and blade model. So IDEX has these tabletop analyzers that are sold to vet offices and they kind of act in lieu of the expensive time-consuming process of sending tests out to reference labs. And then it makes all of its money from selling these tests for these analyzers. So it has its own laboratory consulting and diagnostic services as well that also come from the analyzers. And I just think it's one of the best examples of a razor and blade business model. It's got a really strong mega trend behind it in the rise of pet care. And it's a proven business, good management that has beaten its estimations i think the last seven years in a row or something like that so really good business and always worth always worth mentioning good business on this podcast sometimes we get caught into looking at the most random stuff ever and hey don't disparage the twinkies (laughs) that was a good pitch i wasn't thinking of twinkies in my mind i was thinking of bad pitches i've gone before so Uh, yeah yeah. (laughs) we might try to raise uh i'll try to raise my uh, quality of companies when i elevator pitch from now on Right. do feel free to pitch Twinkies whenever you uh, <laughs> yeah we might we might circle back around if if the cost of food continues to rise hostess might be getting another look yeah so what are you pitching yeah. today is, is it Twinkies yep. am I wrong no 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 it's not Twinkies I'm sticking to the aviation theme because I had to fly through the Denver airport to get back here last week and while I was there there are two security lines in the Denver airport there's a north and the south 
the North security line in the Denver airport is now only TSA pre-check. So everybody has to go through the South security line. And I waited in the security line for an hour and 20 minutes and almost missed my flight to New York. Right. And whilst I was stood in the line, I noticed that there was a clear, secure um, line. Have you ever heard of clear, secure? They're no. in 46 airports. I think they're only in the United States. It's kind of like Fast so Track, is it? It's like Fast Track, but you pay for it. It's a subscription that you pay for. And it essentially eliminates the first part of TSA. So TSA has two steps. The first one is when you have to go up to the agent and present an ID. And they like run it through the computer system. And they verify that you are the person on the ID. So essentially, you get it when you get a clear subscription, you have to you fill out a bunch of paperwork. And it's a biometric um, collection where they it allows them to have a computer system run your identifi- ID verification. So then you get to skip the line for that initial check. Um, and, I, and they're publicly traded. Their ticker symbol is U, Y-O-U. And so I had a look at them and they're actually not bad. However, I am resentful of the fact of privatizing airport security. But anyway, um, th- so far for their first quarter, which was their most recent report, uh, they beat on EPS. Um, their enrollments had climbed 76% and their revenue was up 72% year over year. However, you know, that's a pretty favorable comparison because no one was flying yeah, in 2020. There you go. Um, but they're pretty solid balance sheets. They uh, have $700 million in cash, no debt. Um, and most importantly, in terms of, of looking for some runway here, looking for some excitement, is um, that they just partnered with TSA PreCheck. So now if you get TSA PreCheck, Clear comes with it. Right. Um, people at TSA PreCheck is the same thing. You like pay a membership to gain access to that. And for frequent flyers, this is like a really sweet deal because it means you can show up to the airport like 45 minutes. You know, you don't have to come two hours Sail early. through everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is really interesting because in the U.S. in particular, there are a lot of people who fall into that category who are like, oh, I'd just rather pay for this monthly subscription so I don't have to stand this line. So I'm interested. I think yeah, it could, really it could be something. Business. Especially yeah, ha- when we're talking about how much of a mess airlines and airports have been in the last couple of weeks. Everyone is like, it was like, do you remember when Dublin Airport was an absolute yeah. scandal over Jeez. the summer? And Fast Track was like sold out for the next three months or something like that. It kind of reminds yeah. me of that where people are just going to get involved. Yeah. And, and if you if you have the money, you'd be like, screw it. I will yeah. pay twelve dollars a month so I don't have to stand like line. Buy in peace of mind. Yeah, and so I'm pretty interested in it. I think I will watch it the next couple of quarters. It seems to be in a pretty nice little space at the minute. So yeah. yes. I'm, I'm interested in how it got access to that. Do you know what I mean? If a private company yeah. gets in there and partners with TSA. I think it's one of those instances in which like the US government just gave up. <laughs> and then they let a private company come in. Uh, that tends to be what happens. That's a really interesting business. How, how, what market yeah. cap? Oh, Jesus. I have to look it up. Hold on now. It's pretty small because they're only in, what did I say, 46 airports. But yeah. they're growing. Like more and more airports are adding them. Uh, market cap is $4.2 billion. That's That's a very interesting business. I'll have to take a yeah. look at that. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. All right. So we're finishing that finish on a high note there for that mm-hmm. um that's it for today folks thanks very much for listening if you enjoyed the show make sure to give us a review send us on to a friend do all that good stuff uh if you want to get in touch you can find us on twitter at my wall street hq on tiktok at my wall street or simply just email us at pod at my thank you very much we'll talk to you next week <laughs>
My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone.